In the name of the triune God, who is the lover, the beloved, and the love between them. Please be seated. Earlier this week, I came across a poem that expressed some essential things about what we are celebrating today. It's called Theology for Trinity Sunday by Marin Tirabasi. God is like a braid, not a tousled lob. God is like a symphony, not a soloist. God is like a family, any shape family, steps and blends and chosen, water cooler family and recovery group family, not like a hermit. God is like a soup kitchen, where everyone eats together, worker and guest. God is not like takeaway. God sounds like the United Nations or a really big airport. God doesn't sound like a national anthem, anyone's national anthem. God is more like prayer concerns than a sermon, anyone's sermon, especially mine. God is like Facebook, oh no, with pictures of dogs and vacations and grandchildren, not a blog. Have you looked at the mess that is the Bible? God is like a rambling farmhouse or a trailer park or public housing. All those many, many rooms, God is not like a condo. God is like a baby born in a borrowed cave who flung the aurora borealis, laughed at pterodactyls, and is related to a burning bush, who is also a chicken, but sounds like a Santa Ana or Babel turned inside out. This is where we left off last Sunday on Pentecost, with the God who rushes among us with the fierceness of a Santa Ana wind and who turns the alienation of the Tower of Babel when the cacophony of different languages splinters community into the experience of many tongues praising God's wonders, creating communion in diversity. Today, Trinity Sunday, we celebrate divine communion in diversity. God, who is three in one and one in three. This is the only day in our church calendar that focuses on a doctrine rather than an event or a person. But really, Trinity Sunday is about experience of God. It is served by imagery and stories more than by abstractions that make our heads hurt. The doctrine of the Trinity emerged over the first centuries of the Church as our forebears in faith grappled with how it was that the God of the Shema, the ancient Jewish confession, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, was also experienced as radically present in the human flesh of Jesus of Nazareth, and how, after Jesus' resurrection, 
God was also moving and breathing among, within, between, and beyond Jesus' followers, forming them into a living body, calling, inspiring, and empowering them to love and live in ways they would never have believed possible. What's more, the doctrine of the Trinity expresses not only how we experience God, but something of the mystery of who God in God's self is. That is, God is a community of love. As theologian Debbie Thomas writes, it's not just that God thinks community is a good idea for us, but that God is relationship, intimacy, connection, and communion. God is interactive at God's very heart. God's essence includes companionship and mutuality. Thus, in the Trinity, there is unity, but not uniformity a deep oneness, embracing difference and born of shared love. In multiplicity, God is dynamic, fluid, spilling over, evolving, and leading us deeper into truth, calling us to grow. Richard Rohr, evoking theologians of the early church, says, God dances, and God is dance. So to believe in the triune God is to step right into the dance. The Trinity does not appear in the scriptures in anything like the creedal form the Church worked out through struggle and conversation over the first few centuries of its existence. But our texts for today do offer an intriguing invitation to us to enter deeper into relationship to celebrate the dynamism and the diversity, the hospitality and the profound self-giving of our triune God. Today's gospel is Matthew's final climax, as the risen Jesus commissions his disciples. This short text lifts up many of the evangelists' most important themes. Like many key moments in this gospel, it happens on a mountain, Remember Jesus' inaugural sermon about God's unlikely blessings on the poor in spirit, the mourners, the meek, the peacemakers, and those who hunger for justice. The mountain is in Galilee, the place where Jesus' ministry began, the setting of ordinary work and daily life, and the home of people who are often disregarded, even desperately in need. When the disciples come, as Jesus has called them, there are only 11. We remember Judas' betrayal and despair, and how the others too fled in fear in the crisis of Jesus' arrest and execution. Yet they are invited to come, uncertain and remorseful, beloved and forgiven. When they see Jesus, they worship him, but some doubt or maybe all of them doubt, some of the time. This word, distazo, translated doubt here, appears only one other time in the New Testament. Also in Matthew chapter 14, when Peter steps out of the boat to walk towards Jesus across the water. But he begins to sink 
as he thinks about what he's doing, and the terror of the waves overtakes him. In that story, too, there is doubt and there is worship. The word connotes standing in two places at once, being of two minds, teetering on the edge. Doubt, after all, is not the opposite of faith, but an integral part of it. Doubt can help us grow in integrity and understanding. It spurs us to ask hard questions and face hard truths and open up to mystery beyond our comprehension. It need not paralyze us. It can help us get unstuck and less rigid and maybe more curious. It invites us to learn to trust God even when we cannot see what comes next. If the disciples are a bit shaky, Jesus is clear. They are called, they are welcome, and there is a lot to do. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he says. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Honestly, we often hear this in a terribly destructive way. Indeed, the kind of authority claimed by Christians in many times and places has been imperialist and coercive and violent, denying the humanity, the sacredness of those we seek to convert. This notion of power is the very antithesis of the gospel. And our history with it calls for self-examination and repentance. In contrast, commentator Warren Carter proposes that Matthew is portraying Jesus' authority as a counter to the claims of the Roman Empire, claims to absolute power by absolute right, to the deity of the emperor and the glory of Rome, the expectation that all subjugated peoples and cultures exist to support that glory of Rome. Rather, the life-giving authority that raised Jesus from the dead now empowers Jesus' friends and followers to share the power of new life, the power of love, the authority of the kingdom of God, the blessing God gives to the vulnerable and meek with all people everywhere. We should also say that this authority calls us to pay acute attention to how God is already present among those we meet, present to convert us and draw us deeper into the mystery of communion. This is the only place in the Gospels that the Trinitarian formula, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, is found. What's up with that? It's not a reflection of the theology of the Trinity developed in later centuries, but it is a baptismal formula, and it suggests the practice of Matthew's community in a provocative way. Also, it draws us to reflect on Jesus' baptism, in which the heavens open and the Spirit descends in the form of a dove upon the human one as he emerges up from the waters, and a voice the voice of God claims him, this is my son, the beloved. 
It is into this name, this triune name, this reality, this energy field, this relationship and communion that the disciples are to baptize, that we too have been baptized. We have been claimed by the source of all as beloved, accompanied by the incarnate one, inbreathed by and conspiring with the holy wind who blows where she will. Further, disciple-making involves teaching all that Jesus taught, from the inaugural Sermon on the Mount, to the commands in Matthew 25 to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, welcome the stranger, and visit those in prison. The Great Commission is not about imparting ideas only, but sharing and practicing Jesus' way together, loving God, loving one's neighbor as oneself, and caring particularly for our most vulnerable siblings. Mysteriously, in relationships of mutuality and self-giving, we will enter more deeply into communion with God, God's self. Finally, Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, even when we doubt, even when we grow discouraged or struggle. Here, the Gospel of Matthew comes full circle. Before his birth, the angel named Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. Here and with us always is God, the source of all, God who is flesh of our flesh, God who breathes and blows among, within, and through the whole creation. The creation story from Genesis sets a cosmic context for our reflections on the Trinity, highlighting, as it does, God's pleasure in wild diversity, lovingly made and over and over called good. Here, too, there is a provocative phrase, God makes humans in our image, after our likeness. Whatever does this mean? It is certainly not a Trinitarian reference. What we can say is that only in rich and varied communities do humans reveal God's likeness most fully. Indeed, we bear God's likeness in our communion with all that is made, animals and plants, rocks, rivers and trees, as well as people of every kind. We need each other to be made whole. Genesis also invites us to ponder the same misunderstood authority we found in Matthew. Humans have claimed the right to dominate, extract from, and pollute the natural world with terrible consequence for us and for all life on Earth. Yet in its context, this text calls us to serve and tend and treasure our fellow creatures with wonder and delight. We are invited to mutuality, to learn and evolve and change. May we step into that dance with decisive commitment. There are so many ways that we need to grasp the vital holiness of mutual relationship and unity in diversity. As some of you know, this past Thursday, we discovered that our pride flag had been torn down from the front of the church. While it made me sad and angry, of course I know 
that this is not the worst thing that is happening in these times. Hatred and fear, lies and discriminatory laws targeted at God's beloved lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and more people are rising across the country, never mind other parts of the world. Still, it shook me out of a kind of complacency about how far we've come here in New York. I heard from colleagues and friends about similar incidents and some far scarier ones, not only in Texas and Tennessee, but in Los Angeles and Chicago and New Jersey and Queens. What we are seeing reflects a desperate attempt to exert and hold on to power, power as domination and control of everyone perceived as different or outside a rigid, white, cisgender, heterosexual, Christian nationalism. As you know too well, such hate is often enacted in the name of God. It violates both God and humans made in God's image. We've ordered another pride flag. We'll put it up as soon as we can, maybe a bit higher in the scaffolding. As Mother Meredith Ward said when she heard about this incident, Ascension will respond with love and lemon water. As Jesus commissioned us to do, we will redouble our witness with pride and fierce love. We will speak out for justice and we will care for one another. And we will stand especially with our most threatened and vulnerable siblings. Trinity Sunday is an auspicious beginning for Pride Month. As we praise the diversity and communion at the heart of the triune God, we also celebrate God's great delight in lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and plus people who they made in their own divine image and claim as so very good. For me, this season is always a chance to give thanks from the bottom of my heart for LGBTQ friends, colleagues, and parishioners. You've helped me learn about courage and authenticity and the wonderful variations of identity and love, about joy and grief and furious dancing. So let us step boldly and joyfully into the divine dance, beloved. Whether we favor an elegant waltz, a Texas two-step, hip-hop, or disco, happy pride to each and all of you, and may the blessing of the three-in-one overflow and accompany and empower us always. Amen.